This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. AI, we're all talking about it, some of us are petrified by it, and others are wide-eyed about a future full of new possibilities. But who's really in control? Well, one person who has helped shape the course of this technology over the past decade joins us on the podcast today, Mustafa Suleiman, author of The Coming Wave. Suleiman is co-founder of DeepMind, possibly one of the most advanced AI research businesses in the world. The company was bought by Google in 2014, and Suleiman held a senior position there too. He now heads up a new company called Inflection AI. He recently joined us for a live event at the Tabernacle to discuss his new book, The Coming Wave, and the future implications of the technology. Our host for the evening was Zani Minton Beddoes editor-in-chief of The Economist. This is the first of a three-part episode, and if you want to get all three episodes right now, do head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership, or subscribe to our channel via Apple Podcasts, and you can get the whole listen, ditch the ads, and dig into much more premium member-only content. And if you want to know more about what's going on at Intelligence Squared, do sign up to our newsletter on intelligencesquared.com, and you'll get updates about upcoming events with Rory Stewart, Mary Beard, Gillian Tett, Michael Lewis, and much, much more, landing straight to your inbox. Part two of this event will be in the next episode. But now let's join Zanny Minton Beddoes and Mustafa Suleiman in conversation. It's great to see, my gosh, so many friends, actually, and indeed my husband, which is a bit alarming. He never turns up to any event I do. Uh, but um, it is great to be here uh, to talk with about literally one of the hottest topics of the moment with someone who has written one of the best books about it. Um, how many of you have used ChatGPT? Just a show of hands. Virtually everybody. I think you'd probably then agree that ChatGPT what, came in November last year, and it was only then that most people realized that artificial intelligence, generative AI models in particular, were about to change the world. And suddenly there was a kind of collective global, oh my god, this capability is extraordinary. And it's been reflected in endless numbers of editorials, hand-wringing politicians, and I think I'm right in saying the main focus has been on the downsides. Everyone has their pet view of what the odds are of existential risk. Are we all going to kill ourselves? It's all terrible. And Mustafa comes into this as a man with considerable credibility. He's a man who has co-founded not just one, but two successful AI companies. Uh, and he's a man who, in this book, takes a sober, realistic, and actually very compelling look at what lies ahead of us. And so that's why you really should read it. It's great. I've read it twice. Uh, you should read it. 
Mustafa, just to give you some, he doesn't need much introduction, I don't think, to this group, but he was a co-founder of DeepMind back in 2010. Uh, he then was a co-founder of Inflection AI with Reid Hoffman. Reid Hoffman, his co-founder, has, with the help of ChatGPT, written an extremely upbeat view of the potential of this technology. So I'd love to know the debates between the two of you. Um, he was, got a CBE a few years ago for his visionary services and influence in the UK technology sector. Um, he is also on the board of The Economist, so I get to see Mustafa working <laughs> up close. Um, uh, he's a friend of The Economist, friend of, uh, and, and great figure in British technology. But I think, and the place to start with this book, and the book is called The Coming Wave, and you will know that there has been, if you've turned on your TV or listened to a podcast recently, you will know that, never mind The Coming Wave, there is already a wave of um, publicity and people being impressed with this book. I believe you've had, you told me, 60 appearances of various sorts, so consider yourselves lucky, you're 61 on this list. Uh, but understandably, the, work, the book has had a tremendous impact because it is very interesting, very thoughtful, and it's on the hottest topic of the moment. So we want to talk most of the time about the book, but I do want to, for those of you who don't know Mustafa, to get a little bit of background. And the first is that Mustafa is actually not a computer geek. You didn't study computer code, right? You studied philosophy and theology at Oxford. So can you just give us the kind of potted history about how a man who studied philosophy and theology comes to be the co-founder of two tech companies? What are you doing? <laughs> well, I've always found philosophy a systems thinking tool. It enables me to be rigorous and clear about what I think. And you know, right from the very outset, I think when I was 19, I actually dropped out of my philosophy degree. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, I didn't finish. And I was really motivated by the impact that I could have in the world. I left to help start a charity. Um, at the time, it was a telephone counseling service um, called Muslim Youth Helpline. And it was a secular, uh, that I was a, an atheist, even though I'd grown up uh, with a Muslim background. Uh, it was a secular service that was designed to provide faith and culturally sensitive um, support to young British Muslims. This was in 2003. And you know, I, I found myself at Oxford studying this very theoretical, esoteric you know, set of ideas, and I wanted to put real things into practice in terms of my ethics, and that was why I went to you know, start the helpline and worked on that as a volunteer for three years. Uh, I soon got you know, frustrated about the scale of impact um, in our nonprofit, uh, and I worked briefly for the mayor of London at the time, Ken Livingstone, um, as a human rights policy officer. Um, and, you know, that was, that was inspiring, but I was also struggling with the scale of impact. I, I, I realized that, you know, if, if I didn't capture what really makes us organized and effective as a species, the profit incentive, then I was going to miss one of the most important things to happen in my lifetime. And um, at the time, I saw the rise of Facebook. This was sort of around 2007, 2008. And it had grown in the space of two years to 100 million monthly active users. And I was totally blown away at how quickly this was growing out of seemingly nowhere, something completely new to me. And so I set about on a quest to find anyone and everyone that would speak to me to teach me about technology. I had started a bunch of businesses before that, two different businesses, one actually a technology company selling electronic point of sale systems, actually around here in Notting Hill, 
uh, in restaurants, uh, trying to put Wi-Fi infrastructure in there and so on. That was, a, that was unsuccessful. That was ahead of its time. Um, and so I was looking for people who I could you know, form a new partnership with and figure out how to take advantage of, of, of technology. Uh, and that's where I met my friend and co-founder of DeepMind, Demis Asabis, because he was the brother of my best friend at the time from school. Um, and he was just finishing his PhD uh, in neuroscience at UCL, and we got together, and you know, the rest is history. And at that time, you know, back in 2010, you had between you, and there was another co-founder, right, Shane, like the three of you had the ambition that you were going to create an artificial intelligence that was you know, capable of replicating human intelligence or even succeeding it. So just think, this was 13 years ago. The rest of us didn't even know this stuff was really going on. You're, you're in your, where is it, in Regent Square somewhere. Did you imagine that by 2023, the world would have what we have now? I mean, in a way, yes. It, it was difficult for us to imagine exactly how it would unfold, but we made a very big bet on deep learning uh, which is one of the primary tools that is powering this new revolution um, before anybody was involved in deep learning. So the, the current chief scientist and co-founder of OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT, was one of our interns uh, back in 2011. Jeffrey Hinton, who, was the, who subsequently became the, um, one of the heads of AI at Google and is known now as the godfather of AI, recently in the press, worried about the consequences, he was our first advisor, our paid advisor. I think his salary was 25,000 pounds a year to advise us. So I think three of the six co-founders of OpenAI at some point passed through DeepMind, either to give talks or were actually members of the team. So really, it was incredibly about timing. You know, we got the timing absolutely right. We were way ahead of the curve at that moment, and somehow we managed to hang on. So you, you were there for a while, and then let's fast forward a bit. Um, you can read the rest of this in the book. You, you now have co-founded and run Inflection AI, and you are creating an AI called Pi, which you can interact with, if you like. Tell us what Pi does. So Pi stands for personal intelligence, and I believe that over the next few years, everybody is going to have their own personal AI. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of AIs in the world. They'll represent businesses, they'll represent brands, every government will have its own AI, every nonprofit, every musician, artist, record label, everything that is now represented by a website or an app is soon gonna be represented by an interactive, conversational intelligence service that represents the brand values and the ideas of whatever organization is out there. And we believe that at the same time, everybody will want their own personal AI, one that is on your side, in your corner, helping you to be more organized, helping you to make sense of the world. Um, it really is gonna function as almost like a chief of staff or you know, prioritizing, planning, teaching, supporting, supporting you. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theater, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So that sounds great. Um, what does it actually mean, though, in practice? Because so often this conversation about AI, it's at this point, then it turns into the apocalyptic. We're going to end up you know, wiping ourselves out because there'll be some rogue person you know, sitting in a garage somewhere who will you know, unleash a virus that will kill us all. So before we get to all of that stuff, in, let's say, I don't know, five years, I mean, you've said within the next three to five years, you think AI will reach human-level capability across a variety of tasks. Perhaps not everything, but a variety. So paint a picture for us of what life will be like in five years, at 2028. I mean, first of all, will it be you and me here, or will there be the kind of Mustafa AI and the, and the Zani bot? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me, let me just go back 10 years, just to, to give you a sense for what has already happened and why the predictions that I'll make, I think, are plausible. So the deep learning revolution enabled us to make sense of raw, messy data. So we could use AIs to interpret the content of images, classify whether an image contains dogs or cats, what those pixels actually mean. We can use it to understand speech. So when you dictate into your phone and it transcribes it and records perfect text, we can use it to do language translation. All of these are classification tasks. We're essentially teaching the models to understand the messy, complicated world of raw input data well enough to understand the objects inside that data. That was the classification 
revolution, the first 10 years. Now we're in the generative revolution, right? So these models are now producing new images that you've never seen before. They're producing new text that you've never seen before. They can generate pieces of music. And that's because it's the flip side of that coin. The first stage is understanding and classifying, if you like. The second stage, having done that well enough, you can then ask the AI to say, given that you understand you know, what a dog looks like, now generate me a dog with your idea of pink, with your idea of yellow spots, or whatever. And that is an interpolation. It's a prediction of the space between two or three or four concepts. And that's what's produced this generative AI revolution in all of the modalities. As we apply more computation to this process, so we're basically stacking much, much larger AI models, and we're stacking much, much larger data, the accuracy and the quality of these generative AIs gets much, much better. So just to give you a sense of the trajectory we're on with respect to computation. Over the last 10 years, every single year, the amount of compute that we have used for the cutting edge AI models has grown by 10x. So 10x, 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 10 times in a row. Now that is unprecedented in technology history. Nowhere else have we seen a trajectory anything like that. Over the next five years, we'll add probably three or four orders of magnitude, basically another 1,000 times the compute that you see used today to produce GPT-4, or the chat model that you might interact with. And it's really important to understand that. That might be a technical detail or something, but it's important to like sort of grasp that because when people talk about GPT-3 or GPT-3.5 or GPT-4, the distance between those models is in fact 10 times compute. It's not incremental, it's exponential. And so the difference between GPT-4 and GPT-2 is in fact 100 times worth of compute. The largest compute infrastructures in the world basically to learn all the relationships between all the inputs of all of this raw data. So what, in, does that mean? The, what does that entail and enable them to do? In the next phase, we'll go from being able to perfectly generate, so speech will be perfect, video generation will be perfect, image generation will be perfect, language generation will be perfect, to now being able to plan across multiple time horizons. So at the moment, you can only say to a model, give me you know, a poem in the style of X. Give me a new image that matches these two styles. It's a sort of one-shot prediction. Next, you'll be able to say, generate me a new product, right? In order to do that, you would need to have the AI go off and do research to you know, look at the market and see what was potentially gonna sell. What are people talking about at the moment? It would then need to generate a new image of what that product might look like compared to other images so that it was different and unique. It would then need to go and contact a manufacturer and say, here's the blueprint. This is what I want you to make. It might negotiate with that manufacturer to get the best possible price and then go and market it and sell it. Those are the capabilities that are going to arrive you know, approximately in the next five years. It won't be able to do each of those automatically, independently. There will be no autonomy in that system. But certainly, those individual tasks are likely to emerge. So that means that, presumably, the process of innovation becomes much, much more efficient. The process of managing things becomes much more efficient. What does that mean? And let's, let's stick with the upside for the moment. I, will, I promise you we'll get to all the downsides, of which there are many. But, but <laughs> What is that going to enable us to do? I mean, people talk about 
AI will help us solve climate change. AI will lead to tremendous you know, improvements in healthcare. Just talk us through what some of those things might be so we can see the upside. Intelligence has been the engine of creation. Everything that you see around you here is the product of us interacting with some environment to make a more efficient, a, more, a cheaper table, for example, or a new iPad. If you look back at history, you know, today we're able to create, we're able to produce a kilo of grain with just 2% of the labor that was required to produce that same one kilo of grain 100 years ago. So the trajectory of technologies and scientific invention in general means that things are getting cheaper and easier to make. And that means huge productivity gains, right? The insights, the intelligence that goes into all of the improvements in agriculture, which give us more with less, are the same tools that we're now inventing with respect to intelligence. So for example, to stay on the theme of agriculture, it should mean that we're able to produce new crops that are drought resistant, that are pest resistant, that are in general more resilient. We should be able to, to tackle, for example, climate change. And we've seen many applications of AI where we're optimizing in existing industrial systems. We're taking the same big cooling infrastructure, for example, and we're making it much more efficient. Again, we're doing more with less. So in every area from healthcare to education to transportation, we're very likely over the next two to three decades to see massive efficiencies. Invention, think of it as the interpolation I described with respect to the images. The, 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 the AI is guessing the space between the dog, the pink color, and the yellow spots. It's imagining something it's never seen before. And that's exactly what we want from AI. We want to discover new knowledge. We want it to invent new types of science, new solutions to problems. And I think that's really what we're likely to get. We, I believe that if we can get that right, we're headed towards an era of radical abundance. Imagine every great scientist, every entrepreneur, you know, every person having the best possible aid, you know, scientific advisor, research assistant, chief of staff, tutor, coach, confidant, each of those roles that are today the, you know, exclusive preserve of the wealthy and the educated and those of us who live in peaceful, civilized societies. Those roles, those capabilities, that intelligence is going to be widely available to everybody in the world. Just as today, no matter whether you are a, a, you know, a millionaire or you earn a regular salary, we all get exactly the same access to the best smartphone and the best laptop. That's an incredibly meritocratic story, which we kind of have to internalize. You know, the best hardware in the world, no matter how rich you are, is available to at least the top two billion people. And that is, I think, that is going to be the story that we see with respect to intelligence. All right, enough upbeat stuff. That was, that was, we've had 20 minutes of upbeat, which is more than you've had in most of the, the interviews you've done. Uh, but you didn't call your book, you know, The Coming Nirvana. You called it The Coming Wave. And I'm told that you were thinking of the original title was going to be Containment is Not Possible. I'm glad you didn't call it that. It wouldn't have sold so well. Uh, but explain the argument you're making is not actually Nirvana is around the corner. In fact, it's a much, much more subtle argument than that. So tell us what the downsides are and what it is that your book, the focus on containment is in the book is about. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think I'm pretty wide-eyed and honest about the potential risks. And, you know, we, if, if you 
take the trajectory that I predicted, that more powerful models are going to get smaller, cheaper, and easier to use, which is the history of the transistor, which is the history of every technology and you know, value, basically, that we've created in the world. If it's useful, then it tends to get cheaper, and therefore it spreads far and wide. And in general, so far, that has delivered immense benefits to everybody in the world, and it's something to be celebrated. Proliferation, so far, has been a really, really good thing. But the flip side is that if these are really powerful tools, they could ultimately empower a vast array of bad actors to destabilize our world. You know, everybody has an agenda, has a set of political beliefs, religious beliefs, cultural ideas, and they're now gonna have an easier time of advocating for it. You know, so at the extreme end of the spectrum, you know, there are certain aspects of these models which provide really good coaching on how to manufacture biological and chemical weapons. It's one of the capabilities that all of us developing large language models over the last year have observed. They've been trained on all of the data on the internet, and much of that information contains potentially harmful things. That's a relatively easy thing to control and take out of the model, at least when you're using a model that is manufactured by one of the big companies. They want to abide by the law, they don't want to cause harm, so we basically exclude them from the training data and we prevent those capabilities. The challenge that we have is that everybody wants to get access to these models and so they're widely available in open source. You know, you can actually download the code to run, albeit smaller versions of Pi or ChatGPT, for no cost. And if that trajectory continues over 10 years, you get much, much more powerful models that are much smaller and more you know, transferable. And you know, people then who want to use them to cause harm have an easier time of it. I think that's a really important distinction, that there are you know, the leading companies, you, Google DeepMind, you know, OpenAI, who have the biggest models now, and there are a relatively small number of these ones, and they are bigger and more powerful, but not far behind are a whole bunch of open source ones. And so the question is then for your containment, can you prevent the open source ones, which will potentially be available to the you know, angry teenager in his garage or her garage, can those ones be controlled or not? Okay, the darker side of my prediction is that these are fundamentally ideas. You know, they're, they're intellectual property. It's knowledge and know-how. An algorithm is something that can largely be expressed on three sheets of paper and actually is readily understandable to most people. You know, it's a little bit abstract, but it, you can wrap your head around it. The implementation mechanism you know, requires access to vast amounts of compute today. But if in time you remove that constraint and you can actually run it on a phone, which you ultimately will be able to do in a decade, then that's where the containment challenge, you know, comes into view. And I think that there are also risks of the centralized question, right? This is clearly gonna confer power on those who are building these models and running them. You know, my own company included, Google, and the other big tech providers. So we don't eliminate risk simply by addressing the open source community. We also have to figure out what the relationship is between these super powerful tech companies that have lots of resources, and the nation state itself, which is ultimately responsible for holding us accountable. So let's go through some of the most sort of frequently cited risks or indeed negative consequences. And, and the one that, that you hear a lot is as AIs become 
you know, equivalent to or exceed human intelligence across a wide range of tasks, there won't be any jobs for any of us. You know, why would you employ a human if you could have an AI? So history suggests that that's bunkum. You know, we've never yet run out of jobs. And, you know, being a good paid up economist, I think it's a lump of labor fallacy. But lots and lots and lots of people say this. What's going to happen to the jobs? Where are you on that? Well, let, let, let's just describe the lump of labor fallacy, because I think it's important to sit with that, because that is the historical trend so far. What it basically means is when we have when we automate things and we make things more efficient, we, we create more time for people to invent new things and we create more health and wealth and that in itself creates more demand. And then we, we end up creating new goods and services to satisfy that demand. And so we'll continually just keep creating new jobs and roles. And you can see that in the last couple of decades. There are many, many roles that couldn't even have been conceived of 30 years ago from app designer all the way through to the present day prompt engineer of a large language model. So that's one trajectory that is likely. I think the question about what happens with jobs depends on your time horizon. So over the, over the next two decades, I think it's highly unlikely that we will see structural disemployment, where people want to contribute their labor to the market and they just can't compete. I think that's pretty unlikely. There's certainly no evidence of it in the statistics today. Beyond that, I do think it's possible that many people won't be able to, even with an AI, produce things that are of sufficient value that the market wants them and their AI jointly in the system. I mean, AIs are increasingly more accurate than humans. They are more reliable. They can work 24-7. They're, you know, more stable. And so, you know, I, I think that that's definitely a risk. And I think that we should lean into that and be honest with ourselves that that is actually maybe an interesting and important destination. I mean, work isn't the goal of society. Sometimes I think we've just forgotten that actually society and life and civilization is about well-being and peace and prosperity. It's about creating more efficient ways to keep us productive and healthy. Many people, you know, probably in this room and including us, enjoy our work. We love our work and we're lucky enough and we're privileged enough to have the opportunity to do exactly the work that we want. I think it's super important to remember that many, many people don't have that luxury and many people do jobs that they would never do if they didn't have to work. And so to me, the goal of society is a quest for radical abundance. How can we create more with radically less and liberate people from the obligation to work? And that means that we have to figure out the question of redistribution. And obviously, that is an incredibly hard one. And obviously, I address it in the book. But is that's the thing that we have to focus on. What does taxation look like in this new regime? How do we capture the value that is created, make sure that it's actually converted into dollars rather than just a sort of value add to, to GDP. So we're going to get on to redistribution of the role of government in just a second. But first, to remind you, and I should have said this at the beginning, Mustafa and I are going to talk for perhaps another 15, 20 minutes, but then we're going to open it up to questions. And for those of you who are watching on the live stream, feel free to start asking them now, because if this little AI that I have here is telling me that calls and notifications will be silenced, that's not very helpful. Yeah, now I've got an answer. I do see the questions there. So um, please start writing in the questions, and we will get to them in about 15 minutes. But OK, role of government. You need to have, um, you will in this world need more radical redistribution. But one of the concerns is that AI and the rise of AI makes actually the functioning of democracy ever harder. We're already seeing lots of concerns about you know, deep fakes wrecking the 2024 elections. Four billion people live in countries that will have elections next year. 
people are worrying about 2024, never mind 28 or 34. And we just, um, Mustafa and I just had a conversation with Yuval Harari, who is as pessimistic as you are um, thoughtfully optimistic, uh, who basically said it was the end of democracy. Um, uh, I'm not sure that either you and I agreed, but what is the consequence for liberal democracy in the coming decades in this world of AI? Okay, I think the first thing to say is that the state we're in is is pretty bleak. I mean, trust in, in governments and in politicians and the political process is as low as it has ever been. Um, you know, in, in fact, 35% of people interviewed in, in a Pew study in the US think that army rule would be a good thing. So we're already in a very fragile and anxious state. And I think that the, you know, to sort of empathize with Yuval for a moment, the argument would be that, you know, these new technologies allow us to produce new forms of synthetic media that are persuasive and manipulative, that are highly personalized, and they exacerbate underlying fears, right? So I think that is a real risk. We have to accept that it's gonna be much easier and cheaper to produce fake news, right? We have an appetite, an insatiable, addictive, dopamine-hitting appetite for untruth. You know, it sells quicker, it, it spreads faster, and that's a foundational question that we have to address. I'm not sure that it's a new risk that AI imposes. It's something that AI and other technologies accelerate, you know, in, and that's the challenge of AI. That's, that is a good lens for understanding the impact that AI has in general. It is gonna amplify the very best of us, and it's also gonna amplify the very worst of us. And what about the fact that this is developing in a world which geopolitically is split in a way that it hasn't been, at least in the last couple of days, in the post-Cold War world at all? So we have the tensions between the US and China. We have essentially a, a sort of race for global dominance between these two regimes. In that kind of a world, how can you achieve the sort of governance structures that you write about in your book that are needed to try and, you know, perhaps prevent the most extreme downsides of AI. Yeah, I mean, much as I've been accused of being an optimist about it, I've also been accused of being a utopian about the interventions that we have to make. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, that's just a statement of fact. What's required is good functioning governance and oversight. I mean, the, the companies are open and willing to expose themselves to audit and to oversight. And I think that is a unique moment relative to past generations of tech CEOs and inventors and creators. Across the board, we're being very clear that the precautionary principle is probably needed. And that's a moment when we have to go a little bit slower, be a little bit more careful, and maybe leave some of the benefits on the tree for a moment before we pick that fruit in order to avoid harms. I think that's a pretty novel, you know, setup as it is, but it requires really good governance. It requires functioning democracies. It requires good oversight. I think that we do actually have that in Europe. I think that the EU AI Act, which has been in draft now for three and a half years, is super thorough and very robust and pretty sensible. Um, and so in, in general, I've been, you know, a fan of it and kind of endorsing it. But People often say, well, if we get it right in the UK, or if we get it right in Europe and the US, what about China? I mean, I hear this question over and over again, what about China? And I, I think that's a really dangerous line of reasoning. First, it sort of demonizes China, as though China has this sort of like maniacal, suicidal mission to, at all costs, at any cost, you know, sort of 
take over the world and you know be the next dominant global power. I mean, so far I don't see any evidence of, of that. I mean, you know, I'm not ruling it out. I'm not a you know sympathizer, but I, I think we should just be wide-eyed about the actions they're actually taking at the moment. They have a self-preservation instinct just as we do. And the more that we can appeal to that you know, desire to you know, have their citizens benefit from economic interdependence and from peace and prosperity and well-being, we're both aligned in those incentives. I think the second thing is it's dangerous to sort of point a finger at you know, China because actually we can't just have a race to the bottom on values. We have to decide what we stand behind, right? If we're not, you know, I mean, I, I'm a believer that we shouldn't have a large-scale state surveillance apparatus enabled by AI. Um, we shouldn't do that just because China are doing it. We shouldn't get into you know, an arms race and take risks just because they're taking those risks. And that's difficult for some people to accept because you know, they might be hyper-pragmatic. And you know, I think that that only leads to an inevitable self-fulfilling prophecy that we both end up taking terrible risks which are unnecessary. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. To hear this episode in full, head to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or click the try free or subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get our newsletter straight into your inbox, attend some of our live events, then once again, head to intelligencesquared.com.